Mmm, smell that, Mark? Fresh bagels. I'm starving. Yeah, me too. What are you going to get, Paco? Uh, sesame seed, maybe? I like stuff on my bagel. Well, then why don't you get an everything bagel? Uh, a what? An everything bagel. If you like stuff in your bagel, that's where it's at. It's got everything. That sounds amazing. Does it really have everything? Yeah, it's like the greatest bagel you can imagine. Does it have sesame seeds? Yep. And onions? I think so. What about chocolate? Um, no, I think it just has standard bagel stuff like sesame, poppy, garlic, salt, and caraway seeds, I think. But you said it was the greatest bagel I could imagine. I'm imagining all that stuff, plus chocolate and Oreo crumbs. That's what I'm ordering. That bagel doesn't exist, Paco. That's just a new imagination. But you said the everything bagel was the greatest bagel I could conceive of. And I'm pretty sure it's only the greatest bagel if it has chocolate and Oreo crumbs. Look, just because you can conceive of it doesn't make it real. But my everything bagel would be greater if it existed in real life, not just in my imagination. Existing is better than not existing. So if an everything bagel really is the greatest bagel I can conceive of, it must exist. Otherwise, it wouldn't be the greatest. Now, this is a little heavy for breakfast conversation. I haven't even had my coffee yet. Look, does this everything bagel exist or not? I don't know, Paco. Why don't you just go and try to order it? And maybe we'll find out on today's show. Hey everyone, welcome to You've Got It All Wrong, a philosophy podcast for handsome ladies and gentlemen like you. I'm Chad Allen. I'm P.T. Allen. And I'm America's sweetheart, Mark Sanders. <laughs> he can't even get your line out after that. That's my new philosophy name. <laughs> you guys are just throwing so many curveballs. <laughs> What you just heard at the beginning of the show was a reenactment of a conversation Mark and I had earlier this year in a real bagel shop. It didn't go exactly like that, but I was basically making the argument for the existence of a true everything bagel, not just one with a mere five ingredients, but one that literally had everything. And just by understanding the concept of this true everything bagel, its existence could be proven. Did it have... Hold on. Can I just jump in and ask you yes. if it had peanut M&Ms on it? It has everything on it. Okay. So uh, chocolate fudge cake chunks? Yes. Okay. D- d- remember, this is San Francisco we were talking about. <laughs> okay. You got it. Truffle. Continue. It has to have truffle. <laughs> mm, okay. Um, okay. But um, so this argument, my stupid argument about the existence of a true everything bagel uh, was really just a parody of one of my favorite arguments in philosophy, um, what's known as uh, Anselm's ontological argument for God's existence. Uh, and this is one of my favorite arguments in philosophy for a few reasons. One, on the surface, it seems like an incredibly simple and logical proof for the existence of God. It's pretty elegant and also confounding for those who try to oppose it. And although it might start really simply in terms of how the argument is structured, it opens up like so many complicated and nuanced debates about a bunch of different topics. And it just won't go away. Yeah, and it won't go away. It just like seems to persist for like almost a thousand years. Yeah. It's a crowd pleaser. It's like those those big hits you go to when you go to a concert for your favorite band. Yeah. <laughs> it's the love in an elevator for Aerosmith. Right. When we have our philosophy band, we'll play it uh, at the encore. Yep. Um, but the other reason that I that I really like this argument is kind of a nostalgic reason, if you can be nostalgic about philosophical arguments. Uh, but this is one of the topics that was covered in my first intro to philosophy course in college. Um, and like I left that class desperately not wanting to believe its conclusion, but I like could not find the hole in its logic. And Chad, I don't know if you remember this, but I called you that week, like after racking my brain forever on this, <laughs> like trying to get you to reveal the weakness in this argument. Because right. it was like, I just, I had this, this innate desire for it not to be true so that it could like fit in with my current worldview, but like I could not find the problem with it. Do you remember what I said? 
I don't remember this call, but do you remember what I said? Um, I do. Rem- I do remember what you said, but I don't know if we want to get into that now or later when we get into some of the rebuttals for the argument. Well, can you just tell me if it was like smart or not? It was definitely smart and okay, definitely sweet. solved my problem. Great. I slept great that night. <laughs> <laughs> um. So anyway, so uh, what exactly is uh, Anselm's ontological argument for God's existence? So throughout history, there's been a lot of different efforts um, in philosophy to prove the existence of God beyond just faith. And it's it's been a search for arguments that both support the beliefs of people who are religious, but maybe more importantly, um, to offer some kind of proof to non-believers. And that's why, um, you know, this is kind of a, an important topic even today, um, you know, as a practical application in, in everyday life is because, you know, if we could find an argument that definitively proved the existence of God, we could, could convert basically all of the non-believers and um, it would solve all kinds of problems like issues of debates over morality and whatever. Right. Um, and when you say we, let's be clear that you mean sort of like the collective we of philosophers, critical thinkers, and sort of amateur uh, hobbyist philosophers, and not we in the sense of we like the true believers in God who are talking on this podcast right now because like we in that sense are not personally invested in finding an argument that <laughs> proves the existence of God. No, I mean I just told you about like hearing a really sound logical proof of God in philosophy class and then like running home to call my brother to tell him how to right. convince me it wasn't true because yeah. I would refuse okay. to believe it. Yeah. So right. we as in basically like humanity, I guess. Got it. Um yep. So, um, like I said, there's been kind of this like tradition of uh, philosophers and all different kinds of walks of life um, trying to find uh, uh, over the the years, decades, centuries, millennia, uh, proofs for the existence of God. Um, We're going to focus on one type of those arguments today, but I think it's interesting just to kind of mention um, some of the other ones because I'm sure we'll cover them later. And there's a bunch of different ways that you can categorize these arguments um, one of the ways to categorize them that, that I like kind of has to do with some of the reasons why I particularly like the ontological argument. Um, and, and that's categorizing, categorizing them by teleological arguments, which, uh, kind of the easiest way to look at those is like intelligent design is an, is an example of that. So these are arguments where you're looking at things in the world, real things in the world and using those as uh, proof that there must be a God. So you look at things like um, eyes and ears and uh, the way that plants do photosynthesis and you say these are all things that are designed and they must need a designer and you're using kind of like evidence in the real world um, to build a case for um, the existence of God. There's right. also cosmological arguments which you know you kind of start with the teleological arguments and these are looking at lots of different evidence out in the in the world. The cosmological arguments kind of take a step back and basically look at existence as the evidence, uh, you know, in the real world for the proof of, of God. And this kind of goes back to a topic we've talked about before about causes and this infinite regress of causes and all things needing a cause. Um, and you, and you can't have this infinite regress of causes. So there must be a first cause and boom, you've got God again, like this is the biggest overview you could do. So we'll dive deeper into them sometime later. And then the third category is ontological arguments, of which I think Anselm's, you know, might be the first kind of true um, ontological argument. He doesn't give it that title. Um, it's given yeah, later. Yeah, it definitely gets pegged on him for sure. Right. I really like this argument because it it kind of requires the least amount of evidence. You know, we, we talked about yeah. um, a priori knowledge and a posteriori knowledge recently in another episode, um, a priori knowledge being knowledge of existence or the universe that you can get kind of like purely through thinking and and cognition and that's kind of what the the ontological argument um is you know it's a, right. it's an argument that starts with just the concept of god is it is enough to prove his existence or its existence that categorization scheme you gave is is kant's scheme i believe those three categories yeah okay i just want to make sure he gets credit you know cuz 
He, he never gets credit for anything. Yeah, I've never heard of him. What's his name? <laughs> uh, it doesn't matter. Okay. Just quickly on the theme of ontology, um, from the entomological standpoint, um, it's from the, uh, the Greek uh, term uh, on, uh, referring to uh, being or that which is. Um, it's commonly thought of to be uh, one of the most complex areas of study because it's uh, because of its apparent simplicity. It can be you know, like pretty reductive. Uh, you know, something is because it is. Um, evolution could be considered an ontology since, in essence, um, the fact that species that survive survive, and the species that don't survive right. don't survive, uh, which seems very common sense. Um, but obviously, uh, that's the uh, the entire uh, crux of of how. Uh, uh, you know, Darwin's origin of species was uh, originally put together. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's a pretty good paraphrase um, of Darwin's work. That's the pa- <laughs> that's the pamphlet version, right? You just like, re- uh, yeah, that just reduce the whole origin of species down to uh, a, a simple. Can I interest you in this pamphlet on evolution? <laughs> <laughs> We'd love to publish it if you could just write another couple of hundred thousand words just around it, just to flesh it out, just a little more color. Okay, so let's get to it. Um, uh, Anselm's argument for the existence of God. So uh, his argument basically goes like this. When we think of God, we think of a being than which nothing greater can be conceived. Yeah. So he says this is kind of the, the shared concept that we have when we think about God. And he argues that this is even the concept of God that somebody who doesn't believe in God would have. Right. Um, he calls him the fool, which is, um, you know, a, a reference to a passage in the Psalms about somebody, about the, the non-believer. So he would say that even the fool would agree with this concept of God. Even he, even if he doesn't believe that God is real, he believes that the concept of God is a being than which nothing greater can be conceived. Right. So then he goes on to say, well, basically, like, things can either exist in our understanding alone, that is, they can, like, kind of exist in our mind, or we can hold these concepts in our mind, or they can exist in reality. So imagine God, this, quote unquote, being than which nothing greater can be conceived. And imagine that it doesn't exist in reality. Right. It just exists in your understanding or in your mind. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a big contradiction because you can also imagine a God, a being than which nothing greater can be conceived that does exist in reality. Right. So that second version, this God that does exist in the real world, is greater than that first version that doesn't ex- actually exist. Right. Uh, because existing in the real, real world is better than just existing in your imagination or in a concept in your mind. Yeah. I so get if you it. agree with the concept of God, even if you don't innately believe in God, if you follow that logic, then it, the concept of God kind of dictates that God exists. Yeah. This is what provoked your giant anxiety attack, which then led you to call me. I guess. Yeah, I don't know if it was an anxiety attack um, so much. <laughs> Those came much later in life. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, that's, that's, I mean, when I was talking about it being like a really simple argument, like it, it sometimes it takes a little while to kind of get your head around some of these statements, like the idea right. of a being than which nothing greater that can be conceived. Um, but it's really kind of like at its core, a, a two-part argument. Right. Like this is the concept of God. And even if innately in your gut, you don't believe in God, if this This is is this is how you would describe the concept, even if you don't believe in God. Yeah. Right. When we talk about God, this is kind of the simplest understanding that we both have of him. I believe he exists. You don't believe he exists. But if you accept that concept baked into that concept is this logic that requires when you analyze it that God actually exists. And then he basically like drops the mic. Yeah. So to your point, it kind of relies on these two like sort of intuitions. One is, Hey, like, even if you don't believe in God, I don't believe in God. But if you ask me sort of like the definition of God who doesn't exist, I would say, Oh, he's like this, you know, all powerful, like omniscient, um, 
being who's like you know the greatest being you can possibly imagine right and i and then i would say well he doesn't exist but like that's the idea and then and then the argument hinges on this second intuition which is um existing is better than not existing so if god is like the best being that you can possibly imagine then he must exist because existing is not is existing is better than not existing and you just told me that this being has like you know, all of the greatest attributes that a being could have. So it must have the attribute of existing. Right, right. And I think we're slipping a little bit into Descartes' version of this, um, you know, where he starts to talk specifically about attributes and perfection. And Anselm, I think, is like very craftily careful to rely on this description of a being than which nothing greater can be conceived and then kind of like let you fill in those blanks, you know? And I think that that's what makes this argument more difficult to refute than some of the later versions like Descartes, where he kind of like, he kind of wants to cut to the chase even quicker. So he's basically like, God's the perfect thing. Uh, and, (laughs) and basically like ends up kind of like, more quickly wrapping perfection into a attribute or quality that is yeah. part of the definition of God, which as we get into the arguments against, we'll see that's that's one of the weaknesses that people um, attack. And Descartes just kind of like makes it easier and quicker to get there. Right. Um, whereas Anselm, I think, leaves it a little bit more nuanced. Yeah. And this is the famous Cartesian circle, which we won't talk about, but which I think is like, fair to sort of name check if as long as we're going to mention Descartes and his ontological argument. Yeah, Anselm always reminds me of the, uh, I'm just a poor country lawyer. And uh, he steps through a very simple, straightforward argument that ends up uh, arriving at the conclusion he wants. Whereas I think in a courtroom, uh, Descartes would would certainly be accused of uh, leading the witness, uh, starting with the premise of, uh, we all will love God, right? 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 Okay. Based on that fact, how much do you love God? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, would Would you or would you not? say that God is perfect and he has all perfections. Objection. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury. Yeah, definitely. No, like Anselm like lays this really elegant trap, you know, this really elegant logic trap. And, uh, you know, like regardless of whether or not you buy into the conclusion or you can poke holes in it, I I think it's, it's, it's hard not to admire for the elegance of the argument itself. And, you know, I I want to talk about, like, uh, some of the objections to this argument, but I, I think from a historical perspective, I think it's interesting to note, and we, maybe we should have talked about this earlier, but I think it's interesting to note that, um, you know, we're, we're talking about a saint here, like someone who was, you know, literally sainted by the Catholic Church. And so I think there's this tendency in contemporary Christianity to, like, um, to think that uh, belief in God is entirely a matter of faith and that like we shouldn't have to construct these logical arguments for it. And that's just like not the way that belief in God works. But this is this is a guy who is a saint and he's like very invested in finding a, a logical proof for God's existence. And And he's not the only one. There's a long tradition of this kind of very philosophical um you know, way of approaching theological questions um, in Christianity and and in other religions as well. Yeah, particularly the Jesuits, and particularly like Aquinas, who, you know, went to great length to tie together, you know, classical philosophy and and Christian theology all in one go. Yeah, I mean, I think there is a strange thing um, in some ways uh, today with Contemporary Christianity, at at least in in the States, you know, it's hard for me to speak about other um, countries where kind of like faith-based belief in God is almost like the most praiseworthy reason for believing in God as opposed to a well-constructed, logical, rational kind of philosophical proof like this. Um, and I think that the, that the reason that there was a lot of this going on in in the church during this period of time is because it's kind of, you know, in 
uh, you know, the end of the medieval era. Yeah, Anselm lived in the eleventh century. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and and basically, like all of the um, all of the intellectual and scholarly people have kind of retreated to you know monasteries and churches, yeah. and yeah. so they're kind of like the the centers of the last like centers and refuges for critical thinking at that period of time. I would say we think of in the Middle Ages, these dark ages, that monasteries in Europe were the refuge of, of academic knowledge and instruction. But uh, of course, in, in Southern Europe and around the Mediterranean, um, it was the birth of the university system. Um, these these uh, Arabic and, and, and Muslim scholars who founded universities, in fact, the oldest university is, is of Arabic uh, descent in, in the ninth century. Um, were uh, huge um, uh, destinations for academics and philosophers as well as um, uh, uh, scientists, uh, what we now refer to as scientists and, and doctors, where huge amounts of um, knowledge and information was, was shared and documented. Yeah. In fact, yeah. um, the majority of the, uh, the classical works from um, ancient Greece that we know today only exist because they were translated and, and taught in these, these uh, uh, Arabic uh, texts in these Muslim universities. Yeah, and then and there are variations of this uh, argument that exist in in other uh, religious traditions as well. Yeah, I think Abyssinia has a a, a similar yeah, ontological exactly. argument. Yeah, yeah and and uh, yeah. you know, I would also say, you know, in in Jewish faith, you know, rabbinical culture is basically, yeah, we have a Torah, but like, let's have a discussion about this. Let's have a debate about. <laughs> So this takes us to the work of another notable uh, philosopher on this topic, uh, John Galliano, the noted uh, 1980s fashion designer. Uh, oh, that's in my mind how I always uh, remember the name of this uh, this particular philosopher. Uh, his name was uh, Ganilo, and he was a, a Benedictine monk, um, and he um, lived in an abbey uh, near Tours in France, um, not near uh, Alsace-Lorraine, as I always uh, misremember it. And he had a uh, an equally uh, rigorous uh, repost to uh, Anselm's uh, original uh, conjecture, which he uh, which he expressed uh, in, in very clearly and has become uh, very notable uh, over the years. And he was a he was a contemporary of Anselm's, right? So this like comes at the same time, you know. Yeah, this the, his objection his objection comes almost immediately. Like as soon as he reads it, he's basically like penning his objection to it and then yeah when uh anselm writes uh kind of his revised version he basically includes um the rebuttal and then his response oh yeah that's right they they basically go back and forth yeah about it. yeah 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 so let's look at uh Ganilo's objection in more detail essentially what he was doing he was taking um the original uh postulation uh that anselm used uh around the nature uh, of god of a deity uh, he took that logical construction, then applied it to other things. So he essentially tested its validity by using it in another context to see if the argument itself, the actual mechanics, would uh, yield the same results. So a very kind of scientific, analytical approach. Um, and he, for the purpose of, of this uh, this objection, instead of God, he replaced the, the, the subject of the argument with um, a perfect island. Um, uh, I'd also like to mention as an aside, uh, if you look at uh, some of the material around the creation of the uh, hit ABC uh, TV show uh, Lost, um, that there was actually some uh, background to the creators uh, uh, having uh, an understanding of uh, Ganilo's uh, concept uh, of, a, of a perfect island in, the, in this sense. I thought Lost was based on Fantasy Island. <laughs> I, I thought it was based on Gilligan's Island. Didn't we determine that? In an earlier episode? Oh, right, yeah. Do Mr. Rourke and Tattoo exist on this perfect island? <laughs> well, they must, because it's the greatest island you can conceive right. of. Right, right. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So if this lost island were real, it would be better, you know, by extension, than our idea of the greatest island, uh, again, along the same lines as, as uh, St. Anselm. So if the Lost Island must exist, since by definition the Lost Island is the greatest island we can conceive of, this is obviously taking us down a false path. Um, since uh, this is, has the same structure as uh, Ansel's argument, Ansel's argument must be right. also false as well. Um, uh, the, the Latin phrase, reductor ad absurdum, you know, re reducing to the absurd. 
Well, I was, I was going to say, I think there's even another little jab in there, which is basically to say that if we could conceive of this most perfect island and in its conception, we basically cr- create it, like it's created based on our conception of it, it m- in some way makes us a creator like God. So there's almost like this kind of blasphemous mm-hmm. undertone uh, to it as well. Yeah, that's a great, great point. We, we are also the Godhead. And I think we should point out that the everything bagel argument is a direct descendant of the lost island or perfect island argument. Nope, it's a wholly <laughs> unique uh, created story. <laughs> <laughs> They're both uh, reductio ad absurdums of, of uh, St. Anselm's uh, uh, yeah. ontological I, I, I think it's out of copyright. You guys are just like a thousand years too late to the game. Yeah, we're not, we're not going to get sued by any kind of rights infringement here. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I don't think the Guanilo estate is going to come after us on this one. Unless there is time travel as defined in the uh, ABC show lost uh, you mean like super confusing time travel that is never <laughs> like really explained or like potentially doesn't even exist yeah i mean i still don't think they're going to track us down if they have that yeah you mean time travel that just basically like allowed they like they needed another season so let's set one of them in the 70s how does that happen time travel <laughs> yeah I, I will i will like to mention um i'm just looking at the uh, the page on uh, lostopedia for philosophers and we've mentioned this before but I, I i'm just always amazed at how many of the characters names in that tv show were lifted from literal philosophers uh from history and then just planted in there uh including such names as uh mikhail uh bakunin the guy with the eye patch uh uh john locke uh, he also used the name of jeremy bentham um edmund burke uh desmond david hume like these are these are some like, one to one relationships. Like they've just thumbed through the righteous thumbed through a philosopher's dictionary and said, like, yeah, that's, that, let's do that. That's that's good. Yeah, nobody knows who these people are, <laughs> but the names are cool. <laughs> um, so I think it's like I think it's worth noting. Um, you know, again, as we said, that this this argument is you know essentially a thousand years old. Um, and, you know, sort of per Paco's earlier point about its kind of elegance and simplicity, um, it's not surprising that um, it's still with us. Um, and it's, you know, been iterated upon countless times over the last thousand years. Um, and and I wanted to just like talk briefly about um, the most recent important iteration and sort of like the most well-known 20th century version of this argument with which comes to us from um, Alvin Plantiga who's a, an American philosopher um, uh, who's who's still uh, making this argument on YouTube um, uh, you know for as many minutes as you can possibly stand to watch it um, uh, is that where it, philosophy is done these days yeah on YouTube yeah I thought it no, was on podcasts <laughs> No, it's just, you know, I mean, he's an interesting figure because he's, you know, a, he's an analytic philosopher, um, you know, and he's, he's very much like in that tradition, he's well-respected, he's done work in other areas, not just in philosophy of religion. Um, You may recall from an earlier episode that he was um, a graduate student, or no, he was an, he had his first, um, uh, teaching position at, at Wayne State along with Edmund Gettier. Um and so 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 at any rate, like he 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 definitely is like a, a well respected contemporary philosopher. Um and he is also sort of most well known for um reviving not only this ontological argument for the existence of God, but sort of also reviving the whole kind of like philosophical project of developing arguments for the existence of god and so he's sort of one of these philosophers who's kind of like cross over into mainstream culture and thinking which is why you find him on youtube so much because he does a lot of interviews with um um with other sort of um with, with a lot of kind of christian um i don't know how i describe them youtube 
stars and like well-known personalities so anyway he shows up there a lot i think the kids refer to them as youtubers popular christian personalities <laughs> sorry um so anyway uh let me try to give you uh let me try to give you his version of this argument and you'll recognize a lot of the terminology um sort of like but phrased in a more contemporary way um from saint Anselm's argument so and and there are also many different versions of this. It's generally referred to as the modal ontological argument for the existence of God because it, it hinges on um, concepts in modal logic and possible worlds, which, again, we've discussed in a, in a previous episode. But it sort of starts with the—so the, the first premise is essentially God is a necessary being. So if God exists at all, we— have to imagine that he's a necessary being right so if god exists then he created the world and the universe and all the animals and the plants and so he exists necessarily he he doesn't exist contingently like as a as an accident or a byproduct of something else like if he exists then he exists necessarily is there like another way to to phrase that i, I always find existing necessarily as kind of a not necessarily the easiest to get yeah your so i mean maybe i can illustrate it by way of a couple of examples so I, i'll give you a couple examples of sort of like necessary existence so if any bachelors exist they are unmarried uh, if any squares exist they are not circles so those are sort of like uh it's like a contingent fact that some bachelors exist right i mean we, we we may or may not live in a world that has bachelors maybe everyone's married but by necessity uh bachelors are unmarried okay uh, so so then we sort of like switch into the modal logic um part of this argument uh, which is to say look can you imagine a possible world in which god exists let's say you believe that he that he doesn't exist in in our world but can you imagine a possible world in which he exists and this is sort of the parallel to anselm's statement that like even the fool like uh you know agrees with this definition of god which is to say that like even if you're a non-believer like can you imagine a world in which god exists and i think you know our tendency is to say like yeah, sure. I mean, you know, because I can imagine what God is, then I, I guess I can imagine a world in which, you know, God exists and he, you know, created the universe and all the animals and the plants and blah, 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 blah. But if we combine that with our earlier assumption that that built into the concept of God is that he's a necessary being, then what we're now saying is that there's a possible world in which a necessary being exists. That is, there's a possible world in which a being exists who sort of by definition exists necessarily. And so now we sort of like get into the machinations of modal logic, but the, the sort of like short way to say it is that if there's a possible world in which a necessary being exists, that means that he exists in all of the possible worlds. Uh, there's this kind of like axiom in modal logic that says if something's necessary in one possible world, then it exists in all possible worlds. And so that's, you know, that's Plantinga's way of kind of taking the principles in modal logic and rephrasing um, Anselm's uh, ontological argument. And in a, in a lot of ways, you know, again, it's sort of like this, the argument hasn't gone away. It's been kind of rephrased in you know, using contemporary concepts in in modal logic, but it, it sort of hinges on a lot of the same intuitions around like, hey, can you imagine this kind of being? And can you imagine it possibly existing? Well, if you can imagine this kind of being and you can imagine it possibly existing, then what you're actually imagining is that it necessarily exists. Yeah, it's not as fun as Anselm's. It's not as fun. Um, and I think that you know, if you if you write it out in its long form, um, it starts to seem, in my mind at least, like like a very kind of overly formal attempt to like create this deductive argument that God exists. And I mean, frankly, I feel like 
there's definitely this thread in contemporary Christian philosophy to sort of like start with the fact that God exists. And in Plantinga, like it, you know, openly admits that like his belief in God is the same as his belief is, is sort of like equivalent to his belief that other minds exist. So you just kind of like takes it at face value. Like I think something we might all almost describe as like a faith-based belief. But then he's like, also, I can, like, you know, use these tools of analytic philosophy at my disposal to, like, also create this highly structured, like, logical argument, which I think, you know, fails for many of the same reasons that that um, Anselm's argument fails. And you can actually use the if you if you look at the very kind of formal presentation of the argument, you can essentially run something very, very similar to the Lost Island argument against it and kind of like come up with another reductio ad absurdum but anyway i think it's important to mention just you know if for no other reason than to just kind of illustrate that this this argument doesn't go away and and you know one of the things i think a really really astute comment about this argument comes to us from bertrand russell who said that um, it's much easier to be persuaded that ontological arguments are no good than it is to say exactly what's wrong with them. Yeah. I've got a even better Bertrand Russell quote about this whole thing. Really? From back when he totally bought into it. Was Bertrand Russell a theist? Well, I mean, he, he definitely looked at this puzzle and had an opinion on it. What did he say? Um, so this is from his biography. For two or three years, I was a Hegelian. I remember the exact moment during my fourth year in 1894 when I became one. I had gone out to buy a tin of tobacco and was going back with it along Trinity <laughs> Lane. in my ubiquitous pipe. <laughs> <laughs> I had gone out to buy a tin of tobacco and was going back with it along Trinity Lane when suddenly I threw it up in the air and exclaimed, Great God in boots! The ontological argument is sound! Wait, did he say great God in boots? Great God in boots. <laughs> That's my new favorite exclamation. <laughs> great God in boots. It's time for us to vote on this. Yeah, well, it is except for one thing real quick before we vote. Don't you want to know what argument you gave to me back in college to like convince me that this was not real? Yeah. It's probably way more cogent than any argument I would give today, but let's hear it. I'm sure you're really cool. You basically gave me Kant's objection, which is that somewhere along the line, what ends up happening in the ontological argument is that existence becomes a property of something, right? right? Existence becomes a property of God, uh, that, in your definition of God as all-knowing, all-seeing, omniscient, he's everywhere, uh, also, in addition to those properties, the property of existence gets added, uh, yeah. is added. And uh, basically, the argument goes that existence can't be a predicate, that when you describe someone as tall and fat right. um, and whatever, um, you know, those, those are predicates that describe something and you can combine those predicates into a concept that is the definition of a thing, but that existence isn't a predicate. It isn't a, right. a, a quality that is part of the definition of a thing. You can define something and then say, okay, I've defined it now. Are those things real? Right. And that's like an additional question you ask, but in the ontological argument, somewhere along the way, you make existence a property um, and it, it just simply isn't, right? So the yeah. the, the logic yeah. of the argument falls apart there. Yeah, yeah, I was right. Uh, by which I mean Kant was right. <laughs> Young Chad was awesome. <laughs> okay, so what are we voting on? Um, I think, okay, so what I wanted to vote on um, uh, was something like this. Is the ontological argument for God convincing or compelling, regardless of whether or not you think it's true? So I don't want to vote on, like, does God exist or is the ontological argument correct? Yeah, I agree, because I think that that um, opens us up to a whole section of reader mail that I don't feel like reading. 
<laughs> but uh, I, I would I would vote, and I, and I think I already have, and, and maybe a couple different times throughout the course of the show so far that I think it is a convincing and compelling argument, and I think it's it's stood the test of time, and there are versions of it that are still being worked on today. And I think that the simplicity of it and the the fact that it's this kind of logic based argument and and even when you find problems with it, it's such a nuanced, subtle argument when you get into the arguments against and then the rebuttals and then the rebuttals. Yeah. That it it still has a little bit of that effect on me that it did way back in college where I listened to it and and partway through, I'm like, no, 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 this is right. Yeah, God exists. <laughs> no, no, he doesn't. No. Yeah. Um. So I, I vote yes. I think it's an awesome, it's an awesome and, and ingenious argument. Okay, Mark. Uh, I I think I'm also going to come down on uh, it. It it really, it, you know, it it works for me as well, and it is ingenious. And I I feel like the slow burn that Anselm gave in in this is is uh, akin to a lot of the arguments brought forth in uh in snl sketches uh featuring uh, unfrozen <laughs> caveman lawyer i may just be an unfrozen caveman lawyer but wouldn't you say i don't know how your planes and flying machines and work, also I, I, but i do I know this man is guilty 11th century theologian but <laughs> all right chad um, what are you doing this was I dumb right actually yeah, no, I think it's a dumb argument. I, I think that the argument, I think it's blatantly circular. Um, I know that, you know, you, I feel like there was a, an interesting moment when you were sort of trying to make a distinction between uh, Anselm's version and Descartes' version because Descartes' version is widely considered to be circular. And, and so, you know, you were hoping that there's a version of this argument that kind of avoids that. But I think that, I think that in short, the argument starts with the premise that God must exist and then works from there. And I, I think that it's for sure it's deceptive and like it even gets more deceptive as the centuries go on. Like Plantinga's version of it, if you really dive into it, is like it's so obscure and like so complex that sort of like by the end, by, by the time you get to the end of it, you're almost like, ah, yeah, I whatever, like fine. God exists. Like just ma- like, as long as I don't have to keep like trying to figure this puzzle out, you can pause a YouTube, you can pause a YouTube video. You don't have to keep watching it. Yeah. I mean, I, um, I, which is why I kind of wanted to make a distinction between the various versions of, of these ontological yeah. arguments, because I do feel like Anselm's, even if you don't like that one, it's still, I think, the best of of the group. And yeah, yeah it, I definitely it, agree with that. I, I mean, I don't think a thousand years of working on it has made it any better. Yeah, but I still think that it's um, that it's pretty lousy. And there's also the fact that you can't prove that something doesn't exist. That's the other caveat. Yeah, I mean, but I think he's clearly not trying to go that route. Um, but yeah, yeah, I think no, he's not. To, to, to your point, Chad, I think the the theme of this topic is people trying to support their predecided worldview. You know, Anselm comes at this from well, I need to find a proof for God because God exists, right? And I started coming from this from the standpoint of man, this my philosophy professor just laid this argument on me that seems to prove the existence of God, but I don't believe he does. So, like, let me go find the hole in it, right? Um, do you happen to remember uh, which philosophy professor that was? Uh, nope. You've always been my philosophy mm. professor, Chad. All right. Uh, that's nice. <laughs> All right. To the mid-show break. Hey, you. Do you like this show? Do you? Then why not share the love? Find us on Facebook. Just search for You've Got It All Wrong and share one of our posts about the show with your friends. Find your favorite episode and email it to a friend. Retweet some stuff. Follow the show. We're at All Wrong Podcast. Grab a tweet and retweet it to the thousands of your followers. We'd really appreciate it. Handsome people gotta have each other's backs. And speaking of thousands of followers, one of ours had a question we need to answer. So, back to the show. Okay, so this week we have a question from Tom in Michigan who's writing to us about 
episode 16 on descriptivist theory of names, the Howie Mandel effect. And Tom asks, if the statement, the present king of France is bald, is false, doesn't it logically follow that the statement, the present king of France has hair, is true relative to the first statement, but also false when taken alone? Seems like saying the present king of France is bald is nonsense, avoids this paradox. Um, I mean, aren't both of those, both of those statements are false. Well, so it depends on who you are, right? If you're Bertrand Russell, then you would say both of these sentences include the implicit premise that there is a present king of France. Right. And so Bertrand Russell would say, both of these sentences are false because one of them says there is a present king of France and the present king of France is bald. And that's false because there's no present king of France. And the other one says the present king, there is a present king of France and the present king of France has hair. And that's false because there's no present king of France. Um, but I think what Tom's arguing, arguing for here is the some kind of relative judgment based on those two statements. Well, he's. I mean, he's arguing. He's arguing for that this should be that that it shouldn't be false. That it should be meaningless, right? Right. Yep. So he's he's arguing for essentially the position that that we had uh, attributed to Frege, which says that because the present king of France has no referent, that the statement is just meaningless um, because it purports to be about a thing that has no referent. So there's just no way for us to make sense of, of the statement. And so Tom's just providing some like additional support for, for Frege's position. But I guess my take on this is that, um, you, you don't have to take Frege's position in order to believe that both of these statements are false. So, so I think Tom's posing an interesting question, which is like, Hey, how can you, you have to pick one. Either the present king of France is bald is true, or it's true that the present king of France has hair. Those two things are like mutually exclusive. So like pick one. And right. you can't but you don't have to. Because, right. That's what I'm saying is you don't have to pick one right. because they're both false. Also siding with Frege is siding with a Nazi lover. <laughs> <laughs> well, to be fair, Frege is not the only one who's who's argued this, but I'm not going to pin that on Tom. <laughs> yeah, uh, me neither. I mean, I don't know that Tom was actually siding with Frege, but... Tom may be French. Tom's not French. <laughs> <laughs> I've got some inside information on this. <laughs> Tom's from Michigan. Don't don't forget that I'm the Ubilities of the Midwest. <laughs> <laughs> Does that give you like special access to knowing sort of like what the nationality is of the people writing to us with questions from Michigan? Uh, no, but he, he's from Michigan. There's yeah. there's a directory. There's a philosophy directory of the Midwest <laughs> that I have that I have direct access to. You, you have a monthly meeting with everyone over there, so you know. <laughs> what the monthly like Michigan meeting? <laughs> like no, it's the whole Midwest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what does it really mean to be the abilities of the Midwest? Maybe you'll find out on next week's show. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I can't wait. We don't have an ending for this segment. <laughs> what? I just said I can't wait. And oh, okay. Uh, oh, yeah, but no, no, before we do that, before we do that, um, don't you guys want to know what Anselm did, what miracles he performed to become a saint? Yeah, give me some of that sweet, sweet uh, Catholic miracleism. Yeah, I definitely do. Okay, well, it's really poorly documented. Yeah, like, go figure. Like many miracles. Yeah. But uh, Anselm was basically a superhero. Okay. So. Dope. His miracles included miracles in which he saw through solid walls. X-ray vision. In which he cured young people with a look. Uh-huh. I don't know which superpower that is, but... I don't know. I mean, definitely the first one's very Superman. Yeah. Um, and then this third one, allegedly there were a bunch of wolves that were 
kind of like circling and harassing a gravely ill monk uh-huh. who was kind of barricaded in his home. Yeah. And St. Anselm showed up and as he made the sign of the cross, uh-huh. his tongue turned into like a forked shooting flame. <laughs> what? <laughs> that lanced the wolves and uh-huh. drove them off. Huh. That sounds diabolic. Um, yeah, it does, but also like way cooler than turning one kind of fish into another kind of fish in your mouth while you're eating it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> uh, which saint was that? I can't even remember. Yeah, who was um, that from a previous episode? Uh, it was Aquinas. It was St. Thomas Aquinas who uh, turned fish into other fish in his mouth. Oh, that's right. That's right. <laughs> um, also, like... If you went over um, on the grosser side, if you went over maybe and 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 Saint Anselm like washed his hands in some water and you were feeling sick, you could drink that water and get healed. Yeah. Or if he's eating and you're near him, you could steal a morsel off his plate and it would be like infused with holy magic. Uh- <laughs> So can we go back to the X-ray vision thing? Like, can you tell me, is there like a specific instance in which he like performed a miracle that was sort of based on his ability to see through walls? <laughs> no, he say he saved Lois Lane. Uh, no, I mean, it was like all, <laughs> all of these are like really vague and only um, attributed to one writer who... Um, probably made it all up. Right. Um, but I, I think that the greatest proof for maybe uh, all of these magic abilities being real is his father's name. Okay. Which is Gundalf. <laughs> what? <laughs> uh-huh. yep. Replace the A's with U's in Gandalf, and you've got Gundalf. Interesting. And that's his father's name. Mm. I thought you were going to say his father's name was Jor-El. I I mean, close, but uh, (laughs) Gundalf's a little more medieval. Yeah, fair enough. Gundalf (laughs) Jor-El. It's a boy. (laughs) (laughs) Um... Okay, well, as always, thank you for listening, everybody. If you haven't already, please take a second and hit the subscribe button so you don't miss a show. And if you like the show, why not give us a rating in iTunes? It really helps other handsome people find the show. You can find show notes or other random things about the show at you've got it all wrong.net. And if you have a question or comment like Tom, you can send it to questions at you've got it all wrong.net. And you can also follow us on Facebook, just search for you've got it all wrong, or on Twitter. The show is at All Wrong Podcast. I'm at Paco Allen. I'm at Chad Allen. And I'm at M. Saunders. I hope nobody else had anything to say. Uh, I was I was just gonna get I was just gonna name check a couple of WMU philosophers. All right, we'll name check them in the show notes. Kent Baldner, I'm gonna guess, might is a likely candidate for the Phil one. Is probably class. it. That sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, maybe Man, that'll go in is, at the end of the show. Yeah. Okay. It's a little Easter uh, egg. <laughs>